Good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 42. And uh, I want to thank Jordan and Elijah and Jesse for leading us in worshiping through song. Uh, they have come in huge. There's, you know, the Bible says that the body's built up when we all function according to the individual gifts that God has given us. And you guys are stewarding this gift really well, and we're so thankful for it. Um, we need to be praying for David Townsend's preaching uh, at uh, a friend church of ours in Manchester, um, Northshire Baptist Church over in Manchester right now. So be praying for David, even as we're praying for the Lord to speak to our hearts. And I've been praying two things for this morning. Um, pray them all the time. I, I want it to be true in our church that the word came not in word only, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. And I can't manufacture that. I can't like raise my voice enough to try to make this something spiritual instead of just it being you hearing words. Uh, but the Thessalonian church received, Paul says, received the word of God as it really was. Not as the words of men, but as the word of God. There was a, like a palpable fear and humility in them to receive the word so that it came with power and with full conviction. And so I'm praying that uh, the Lord would empower the word from here and that he would uh, make us humble to receive the word in all of our hearts so that we would hear what his spirit is saying to us today. Um, if you're new to this series in Genesis, we are in the account of Joseph, who is the great-grandson of Abraham. He was sold by his brothers into Egypt, uh, God providentially working through all of this as a means of getting his people into Egypt, where we know he will deliver them um, in the Exodus. But in the meantime, last week, uh, Joseph was brought out of a pit after being there for 13 years, and he was highly exalted as uh, the ruler of all of Egypt, uh, second only to Pharaoh in command. And he had interpreted these dreams from Pharaoh that there was going to be this famine in the land, and so he said, let Pharaoh appoint a wise and discerning man who would help store up grain during the years of plenty, of which there were to be seven, so that they would have food for the famine that was coming on the land. And our chapter picks up after Joseph had been doing that. The years of plenty had passed, and Egypt was known for having all the bread and all the grain as the famine spread out across all the known earth at the time. And so we're going to do things a little bit differently today. Uh, sometimes we will take a passage and we will dive into each verse like it's 25 feet deep, each verse. And there are other times where we might take a verse and we'll go topically throughout Scripture, uh, springboarding from a text of Scripture into that topic from all of Scripture. Today, uh, I'm going to give you some themes to be on the lookout for because we really want to look at one story uh, that has different scenes, but it covers three chapters. And so I'm not going to read every verse from these three chapters, but we are going to be in Genesis 42 through 44. I wish if we had longer, we could keep going because the story continues, um, but we have to save some uh, meat for next week. So um, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to give you some themes to be on the lookout for, and we're going to dive into our text for this morning. Father, we bow ourselves before you. We are people called by your name, 
Lord Jesus, who you have purchased to be a people for your own possession. Lord, I pray that you would send forth your spirit into our hearts, that you would see if there be any hurtful way in us, see if there's sin that we've been seeking to hide from you or to cover ourselves or to outrun. And I pray that you would expose us and cover us with your blood, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that there would be a, just a deep, deep humility that comes on this room, that we would tremble before your word and that we would be receptive. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, Ben here. Sorry because of a weird technical difficulty. We had about three minutes of this message get cut out. So I wanted to give you the parts that you missed and then we'll jump right back in. So I began this sermon by giving our congregation themes to be on the lookout for as we went through these three chapters of Genesis. The first is that we were going to continue to see the providence of God Uh, the God who keeps his promises and works his sovereign will, the God who is saving his people, preserving life in the midst of widespread death through his appointed Savior. So in everything that we read in this sermon, God is at work. And one of the ways that he works is in the second theme, the wisdom of Joseph, who wisely tests his brothers in the fear of God. He's discerning their motives and bringing them to repentance God is using Joseph and his wisdom to um, provoke the consciences of his brothers and to bring forth their guilt and to uncover their sin so that he can cover it with his forgiveness. And so the third theme is the guilt that plagues Joseph's brothers uh, all throughout this account. And so you're going to see those three themes at work in all of these chapters and... um, I think that pretty much catches you up to uh, where this sermon picks up. Bless you guys. So I want you to be thinking at the outset. This is a lot of here's material at the outset, but I want you to be thinking about it because I don't want you to just hear this story in a vacuum. I want you to be thinking about your own life. Joseph's brothers had committed this great crime at this point 22 years earlier, and maybe they had tried to stuff it. Maybe they had tried to outrun it. But at the end of the day, what you're going to see is this theme of this guilt plaguing them. And so I want you to be thinking in your own heart of sin in your life, sin from your past that you've tried to downplay or outrun or you've tried to create a workaround for that God has been putting his finger on in times when you're really sensitive to it. So be thinking about that in your own life. And we've got really good news at the back half of this message So let's begin in chapter 42. Uh, Chapter 41 ended with, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. And I want you to think about how bad things are. This famine is so severe that people are going hungry, and the sentiment across all the earth is, if we don't get to Egypt, we will die. So God has provided salvation through a man that he had appointed, through his wisdom. And we know that Joseph is the type of Christ and all the earth is going to Joseph to buy grain. And so you can kind of feel the suspense of this. If you're reading the story for the first time, everybody is having to go to Joseph to buy grain and they're having to go to Egypt. And this is severe. Jeremiah writes in Lamentations that it was uh, happier are the victims of the sword than victims of hunger. 
This is a, a plague that is going across the land, this hunger and the pains that Jacob is experiencing having to provide for all of his family and all of these sons are old at this point. So you can imagine Jacob is 130 and his sons are in their 50s. So these are grown men having to provide for their families. And chapter 42 begins, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Basically, why are you guys looking at each other helpless and nobody's taking initiative or acting? Go to Egypt. Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. So you may remember that Benjamin is the only other son of Joseph's beloved wife, Rachel, and both of these boys are the sons of his old age. So Joseph was, um, Jacob was 91 when Joseph was born, and Benjamin was born sometime after that. So these were the boys of his first love, his favorite wife, Rachel's dead now, and Benjamin is like all that he has left of her and is his prized son. So he holds Benjamin back. But I want you to think for a moment how just even the idea of Egypt and having to go down to Egypt would have awakened this dormant guilt that the brothers had felt for so long. Just this crime that they had committed against their brother. And they know, I mean, even if they don't think that they're going to run into him, the fact that they had sold their brother into slavery, into Egypt, had to awaken this sense of guilt and this fear in them when they're being charged to go down to Egypt to go find bread. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine in the, was in the land of Canaan. Now the reader knows all the world is having to go to Joseph. When they get to Egypt, the, people are being told, go to Joseph to buy grain. So you have this collision that's coming. Verse 6, now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Boom, there it is. This dream that Joseph had had that was the source of all of his brothers' hatred of him. And he had been a 17-year-old kid sort of boasting that his brothers were going to come and bow before him one day. And they hated him for it. And here we have God keeping his promises and the fulfillment of everything that God had said some 22 years prior. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now you can hear Joseph, his brothers coming to him and saying, we're honest men. And he's thinking, this would be a gigantic change. If this is true, this would be, Mark, a big change in you. Uh, we will see about that. But he's not just going to take their word for it. I want you to think about what Joseph could have done in this moment as you read what he's doing instead. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we're your servants. 
We servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your father while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. So here you can see Joseph's wisdom, and he's telling them exactly what he's doing. Now, he, he may not be testing them for the reason why he's saying, but he is testing them. He wants to see, are these guys the same guys that have sold me into slavery? And how can I get my brother here and my dad here all the while testing them and bringing them to com- repentance and, and confirming whether or not uh, they're the same men or not? So, it says he puts them in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. So hear that. Joseph has the power right now to put him to death. And he could have. You know what you think with all the, the, the greatest hurt, the greatest pain that you've experienced, the thing that makes you most angry, the most unforgiving, and think what you would have done in this moment. And here Joseph has the power to put them to death and he is wisely working in them to see have they been transformed and will they, will they come to a full repentance? So it says the brothers do so. Listen to this. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Don't forget this. This is 22 years after they sell Joseph into slavery. But their guilt is so palpable. They, they, all of a sudden, this guilt is rising in them for this sin that they've hidden and this sin that they've tried to cover and keep secret for so long. And it is proof just right here that time cannot cleanse a guilty conscience. You cannot hope this guilt away. You cannot hope that you can outrun or outpace this guilt or maybe that you can do enough good to offset the guilt that you have for the sin that you've committed in the past. Now, Joseph understood them the whole time, and they didn't know that because he had an interpreter between them. It says he turned away from them and wept. And so this is the fruit of test number one. He's discerning, are these the same men? And trial and hardship are kind of ripping this callus off, right? They've developed a callus around this sin for so long. And here God is bringing them into hardship and trial to rip the callus off so that they would feel the rawness of their guilt. And right now all we see is not really repentance, but just a self-preserving remorse, right? They feel sad and sorry for themselves and remorseful that their sin is being found out, not necessarily that they had committed this great crime. But you're going to see this from Joseph all throughout. It's almost as if he's pained to be testing them like this. But he knows what they need, and so he's acting wisely in the fear of God, all the while underneath all of his austerity and uh, severe disposition towards them, he's got this raw hurt and sensitivity and emotion, and he has to turn aside and weep. 
because of how they've hurt him and because of what he's seeing happen in them. So Joseph returns to them and speaks to them. He takes Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. And I like to think, I mean, you just imagine, Reuben defended Joseph. Uh, So the next in line, the next oldest was Simeon. And we know Simeon and Levi were violent men because of what they did to the men of Shechem. And later it's what Jacob says was one of the things that defined Simeon. So you just imagine that Simeon was a ringleader when Joseph was bound and thrown into a pit. And so here, uh, Simeon's having the fruit of his actions put back on him. Joseph has them bound before their eyes. And Joseph secretly gives orders for their bags to be filled, for the money that they had brought to Egypt for their grain to be put back into their sacks. And he does it in kindness towards his dad. There's a famine over all the world. And he's kindly providing for his family and testing them at the same time. So it says the brothers load their donkeys with their grain and depart. One of them opens the mouth of his sack and says, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? So here you have uh, the brothers have this growing sense of their guilt, not just that their guilt was found out, but now it's this what is this that God has done to us? As if they know that their crime against their brother is ultimately a crime before God. And this is what David says in Psalm 51 when he has committed adultery uh, with Bathsheba and then kills Uriah and he confesses before the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That all sin first and foremost is against God. And so they are seeing these circumstances worked out where they're uh, being acute or they're being framed in a sense, right? They're met roughly by Joseph, and then now they feel like they're being framed and having money put back into their sack, and none of them claim to have done it. And so they're thinking, this is the judgment of God. God has found us out, and we are receiving what we deserve. So you fast forward, the brothers come back, they described it. Jacob, all their interaction with Joseph and saying that Joseph asked for them to bring their younger brother Benjamin to to him and they empty their sacks in front of their dad and he sees that the the money's still there and everybody's afraid. This is what a guilty conscience does. He's even afraid or terrified by a kindness shown, right? It's, It's all of this is being used by God to stir up their guilt and to bring them to repentance. Jacob, their father, says to them, verse 36, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Now, there's a couple of things happening here. Jacob is telling them, you have bereaved me of my children. And I don't know how much he actually knows how much truth is in that statement or if this is another providential way of God using Jacob's speech to bring about guilt and condemnation to the brothers for their sin against God. And Jacob is saying, all of this is against me. So you kind of see, this is still the same old Jacob. It's, you've brought this on me. You've done this against me. And in this statement, he's losing sight of the God of the covenant who's actually behind all of this, working everything out for him. 
So this harkens back to last week's message where you cannot judge the activity of God based on what you can see. Because here Jacob feels like everything is working against him and the promise is moving in the opposite direction of what God has said. And it seems like everything that God had promised was actually coming untrue and they're working their way further away from God blessing all the nations of the earth through his offspring. He's looking around at his offspring and saying, through these guys? It's not happening. So maybe he's holding back Benjamin if like this is the one shot I've got left at, at an opportunity for God to actually fulfill his promise. You're not taking him. So Reuben comes to him and says, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back safely. And Jacob's thinking, probably thinking like, what is wrong with you? First, you steal my wife. So you think I'm going to trust you. And now you're offering to console me by killing my own grandchildren if you, if you don't bring back my son alive. He's not going with you, right? So that's where the chapter ends. Chapter 43 begins with the famine being so severe again that Jacob's saying, guys, you've got to go back to Egypt to buy food. And Judah, you've got to pay attention to Judah for the rest of these two chapters. He steps up. He is the leader of the brothers. He is the functional firstborn at this point. Reuben had forfeited his birthright. Simeon and Levi had forfeited it. And now Judah, the fourthborn, is the functional firstborn of the family. And he steps up as a leader and he says, Dad, he said, do not show up here unless you bring your son Benjamin. So unless you're going to let us take Ben, we're not going. So literally Joseph has displayed such power and authority over his brothers that they would rather starve in famine than show up before this man who's got all the power in the world over them without Benjamin. And so um, Judah says to his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned back. We would have been there and back twice by now. So what you just see, this is a transformed brother. This is so much of a different man than the one from 20 years prior in chapter 38 who um, immorally went into a prostitute who ended up being his daughter-in-law. And then when he found out that she was pregnant unknowingly by him, he called for her to be burned at the stake. And then he's confronted with his hypocrisy in front of all of his family and completely humiliated And that was the beginning of this complete transformation of this man. And now he goes from being the brother who instigated selling Joseph into slavery to stepping up and saying, I will be a surety for my brother Benjamin. This is a completely different Judah. So Jacob says, okay, if it must be so, he prepares a gift for him. Jacob shows forth his righteousness in that they returned the money that was put into their sacks extra. So just as an aside, when you benefit or profit off of something by accident, it is righteous to give it back. So he's, he gets all this extra money. He says, this could have happened by mistake. I want you to take this money and the other money. And this is in the midst of famine. And he packages a gift uh, for Joseph. And he tells his sons, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man that he may send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me... If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So he has a bit of this Esther mentality of if I perish, I perish. 
Like God's going to do what he's going to do, but this is so important to me. It kind of adds this pressure to Judah. Look, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. If, if my sons are, if this son dies, then, then I'm just going to be dead. So the sons take the present and Benjamin, they show up in Egypt. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, this is verse 16 of chapter 43. He said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to die with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into the house. And so they start posturing. They go to the doorkeeper of the house and they say, look, this happened by accident. We didn't mean to take the money. Some, we don't know how it ended back up there. Please forgive us. And the steward of the house, which I think is just a testament to how Joseph even in Egypt, caused all of his house to know of the one true God. The steward of the house says, look, I got your money. Your God must have given you the money, the God of your fathers. So it's all good. Um, but you can see how even in this, that they just feel this fear that they're being brought into Joseph's house. It's even the kindness of Joseph that's testing them and purging them of their guilt and bringing them to repentance. Uh, like we know from Romans 2, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That he's, he shows us kindness in the midst of our sin to draw us to himself. But even here, all they can think of is their guilt. But you can also see this being sort of a, a second and third test of sorts. Because here, the brothers are bringing back the money. So they sold their brother into slavery for minimal amounts of money. And now they're bringing back droves of money to Joseph in integrity because their father moved them to. So you pick up in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought, into, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him and bowed down to him to the grounds. There it is again. He inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, your servant, our father is well. And he is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. So this is functionally this fulfillment of Jacob being Joseph's servant and the father and the brothers all bowing down to Joseph. Joseph lifts up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. So you can see this raw emotion, this pain, this hurt. And here, Joseph's seeing his only, like, fully blood brother for the first time in 20-something years. And it moves him to tears. But this is the fulfillment of Jacob's blessing on his brothers and saying, man, may God cause you to find mercy in the eyes of the man. And this is the same language of God be gracious to you, my son. So all the while, you can see the providence of God moving in the heart of a man who feared God, working to bring his brothers to repentance. And here he has his brother, and he's so moved with compassion that he has to run away and find a place to weep. Cleans himself up, puts his Egyptian makeup back on, and brings himself in front of them and says, serve the food. So then they proceed to have a party. He gives them this full-blown feast and invites them to... Uh, they, they sit in a different spot because the Egyptians hated Hebrews. So there were like three different tables going on. But they have their feet washed. They're cleaned up. 
They're drinking wine. They're eating good food. They are having a party. And Joseph has them sitting in birth order. So they have this fear of God kind of moment, like God is doing something weird. And they're married with him. And there's like the beginning of this reconciliation and the beginning of this restoration happening. So maybe they think they're out of the woods. And chapter 44 begins, And Joseph commands the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So here is test number four. What are they going to do when Benjamin is framed? He's framed as having taken this special cup of Joseph's and they're going to find him out. And Joseph wants to know, are they going to leave him to the clutches of Egypt like they left me? Are they going to cut him loose? Are they going to abandon him? Or have they really changed? So you can see God was using Joseph to bring these brothers to real repentance. He's going to uncover their sin so that he can cover it. Verse 3. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone up only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say, Why have you repaid evil for good? Which is a way bigger question than what's happening just in this moment. Right? This is what they had done with their lives. Why have you repaid someone who was good and righteous with evil intent? And it's the same language as used throughout Genesis chapter 37 when his brothers sold him into slavery. Verse 5, is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Which every of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So they, they tear their clothes with grief over their sin and over this horrible turn of events. But they are doing the same thing in this moment that they caused their father to do when they sold Joseph into slavery. They are receiving in themselves the full consequences of their actions, and they are now tearing their clothes with grief, like, jo like Jacob had done so many years earlier. And then listen to this. When Judah and his brothers, so there's Judah the leader again, came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground again. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, side note, this is not condoning divination. This is not even saying that Joseph actually practiced using this silver cup as sort of an amulet for evil practices. He was known as having this wisdom from God because of all of his ability to interpret dreams. And he was likened to the magicians of the land. And so He's using this as sort of a flex, like, do you not know that I have power and that you're taking this thing that people use for power? Like, why would you th th even think to do such a thing? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? 
Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whom the hand, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So here you have this full circle. God had completely uncovered the guilt of these brothers. He had awakened their conscience, right? No longer are they just recognizing their guilt, but trying to shove it off or having remorse over their guilt because of the consequences. They are saying, what can we even say? What word can we speak? Our excuses are gone. Our ability to hide is gone. God has found us out and we are guilty. So here's where we see Judah and Joseph as types of Christ. So I want you to lean in for this next part. We're transitioning away from our main themes, and I want you to see Judah as a type of the Christ who has come. Verse 18, Judah goes up to Joseph and says, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. And he goes on to describe, When you asked me about our brother, I told you, that he was the beloved brother of our father and that our father's life was bound up into the boy and that if anything happened to him, that our father would die. And I, he told us that he would not send our younger brother Benjamin to come with you for fear that something would happen to him. And we told him that we could not show up before you unless we did. So in verse 27, he says, Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. This is Joseph's first time finding out what his father thought happened to him. And I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come, this is Judah again speaking to Joseph. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, in sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So now we go from our passage and we look ahead. We know that the Christ who is to come is the offspring of Judah. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here is Judah, the functional firstborn, as a foreshadow of his offspring to come who would be the firstborn over all creation. And he steps in as a substitute for his brother Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is a picture of the church. Rachel's name means lamb. If you knew that, it means like nursing you or something like that. And so Benjamin was born in the death of the lamb. And he's given this name at the outset. Rachel calls him son of my suffering, Ben-Oni. But Jacob names him, no, no, no. It shall not be the son of my suffering, but son of my right hand the one who is exalted to my right hand, my hand of blessing. So in this, you have a picture of a people who are born at the death of a lamb, 
who walk the way of suffering, but that's not their ultimate name, not their ultimate identity, that ultimately they will go through suffering and death and become exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so in this moment, you have a picture of Judah, through whom would come the Christ, stepping in and inserting himself as the substitute of the one who is a picture of the church so that he might take his place and Benjamin might go completely free. It's glorious. And Joseph continues to be a picture of the Christ who is to come. He's initially unrecognized by his brothers, just like Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him or recognize him. Joseph is the appointed savior of his people who's been highly exalted over all, and people are coming to him that he might impart life to them so that he might rescue them out of their famine and ultimately out of their guilt. And Joseph, like Christ, leads his people to repentance, confronting their sin, leading them to the end of themselves. He doesn't stop with just the recognition of their sin or recognition of their guilt, but he orchestrates the circumstances of their lives in such a way that he brings them all the way face-to-face with their guilt, where they are out of excuses and out of hiding so that he can bring them to forgiveness and they can surrender as humble servants in need of mercy alone. So all that brings us to today. You guys, we just sprinted through 90 verses, so here we are. Lean in now, okay? Today, what are the implications for you for today? Well, first, all sin is against Christ, the one of whom Joseph was a type. And so just as Joseph's brothers cried out that there was coming a reckoning for his blood and that truly they had sinned against him, you need to know that all of your sin is ultimately a sin against Christ and that what put Jesus on the cross was your sin and my sin. So the cross is there to show us how exceedingly sinful sin actually is. There was no other solution. Jesus cried out before the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way for people to be forgiven or for them to go free, then make another way. And there was none. He had to go the way of the cross to offer himself as a substitute in your place so that you could be forgiven and freed. And ultimately, your sin is the reason why he had to do that. And Jesus' blood is on our hands before we come to him for forgiveness. And God has given us his law. He's, he's demonstrated his divine nature and his attributes clearly through everything that he's made. But he's also given us his law to show us our guilt before a holy God. So without the law... Without things like you shall not steal, you shall not lie, you need to honor God above everything else, honor your parents. Apart from the law, we wouldn't see our sin or our need for Christ. But he did not give us the law so that we could become righteous by obedience to it. He gave us the law, Paul says in Galatians, like a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we could recognize our need for salvation and for cleansing outside of ourselves. And Paul writes in Romans 3 that the law shows us our guilt before God so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world world might be held accountable to God. 
This is what's happening to Joseph's brothers in this passage. They are confronted with their guilt to the place where they say, we are without excuse. We have, there's nothing that we can say. Our mouths are stopped and we're now being held accountable for our sin. And mankind seeks to suppress the truth of our guilt in our unrighteousness and the truth of who God is in our unrighteousness. And it is possible for those in Christ to do the same. So I want to give a word to those of you who have yet to place your trust in Christ and then a word to the church. If you have yet to surrender to Jesus by faith, I want to call you to look to Christ. The guilt of your life, God has given you as a gift. Your conscience, he's given you as a gift so that you would recognize that you are guilty before a holy God and you will have to stand in front of him one day exposed by the light of his holiness. Every thought, every action, every idle word completely exposed and laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. And there will be no hiding. There will be no cleansing apart from the means that he has provided. Time cannot assuage a guilty conscience. It can't take away your guilt. The, the things that have plagued you that you have developed a callus to for so long, maybe the Lord this morning would rip some of that callus off and you would feel again your guilt before a holy God for this sin that you thought was buried in your past but still nags you like an old sprain. Friend, you do not want to be hoping in your own goodness on that day when you stand before the judge of all the earth. You don't want to be hoping that your righteousness was enough when he has declared to you that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and you will spend eternity apart from him in hell, apart from salvation outside yourselves. But the Lord Jesus, the offspring of Judah, came to save sinners. That's what he said he came to do. He came into the world to save sinners. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And he lived a perfectly righteous life so that he could insert himself in your place and take the penalty of your sin that you deserve so that you could go free. Exactly like what Judah did for Benjamin. I will be, I will suffer in place of the boy while he goes free. And if you're going to understand the significance of what Jesus did for you at the cross, you have to understand how much God the Father prizes the blood of Christ. The infinitely righteous blood of King Jesus, who never sinned but offered his life in your place, and his blood had the power to atone for your sins. It means not only to forgive you and pardon you for your sin, but also to cleanse the guilt of it, to remove not only the sin, but the stain of your sin, so that you could come into a relationship with God on the basis of Jesus' life and Jesus' goodness. You get what Jesus deserves for his holiness while he takes what you deserve for your unrighteousness before God. And that blood alone is powerful enough to atone for your guilt and to cover it. Elijah read for us out of Romans chapter 4, uh, which was quoting Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, means taken away. Like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those whose sins are covered, meaning God covers them. He covers them and forgives them, and they are hidden with Christ, completely forgiven 
and cast behind his back. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So in the highest demonstration of the highest love, Christ came and died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring you to God. And so the the exhortation to those who are outside of Christ is the same. Come to Joseph for bread. Come to the Christ, the only one who can deliver your soul in the midst of the famine of your life, and he will give you life. But to the church, I say, be reminded that Jesus took your place and that, remember what he said to Isaiah when the coal from the altar, a picture of the cross, touched his mouth, and he said, your sin is atoned for and your guilt is taken away. So if anyone is in Christ, he has forgiven you of your sin and he has cleansed the guilt of your sin and has made you new. And so the charge to us is believe it and press on to possess it by living a life worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to him in every respect. We, we rest in him by faith and we rest in the grace that Jesus has bought for us at the cross and we press on into holiness so that we can live our lives before God with a conscience that doesn't condemn us. But this is what I want to say to the church. You don't have to live with the guilt of your sin. You take it to Jesus. Listen to 1 John. We're starting to wind down. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with Jesus while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It could be that some of your guilty conscience or some of your lack of peace comes from claiming Jesus and claiming to have fellowship with him all the while walking in darkness and not walking with Jesus. And John says, if that's you, you're lying and you're not practicing the truth. But, but your, your heart is deceived. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's where the cleansing, again, where the cleansing comes from is the blood of Jesus as we walk in the light and we have confidence before God that he has done what he said he's done. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So I want you to hear this, church. If you say that you don't have sin, then you're not seeing it. And the truth is not working in you. Ultimately, if you say you have no sin, then you don't need Jesus. And he's saying the truth is not in you. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar in his word is not in us. So this is what I want to say. We need to be done with excuses for sin. We need to be done with downplaying sin, right? Where sin's no longer exceedingly sinful, where you don't, you know how we do this, right? You, when you describe your sin to somebody else, you know it doesn't sound as sinful as it really is. But you convince yourself of that same thing. So what I'm saying is how you describe your sin to other people is the same thing that your heart does to yourself. And you just feel like your anger, your impatience, uh, your lustful looks 
are just something that you need to work on. It's something that you've made peace with and that, you know, would be understandable for anybody else in your same set of circumstances instead of treason before God that needs to be taken to the cross. We have to be on guard against making peace with sin. Or I described this to one of my boys who will remain undisclosed, but he and I both do this, right? You're confronted with the guilt of your sin, and the first thing that comes to mind is an excuse for why you did what you did or why what you, like how it was caused by somebody else. And I told him, I said, son, when we do that, we are making a detour around the cross. You don't actually need Jesus if you have your excuse. So we have to be on guard against claiming the righteousness of Christ and believing in the grace of God and rejoicing in it over here and then using that grace to try to hide sin that we're hiding from God, sin that we're hiding from Jesus, all the while using the grace of God in Christ to try to cover sin that we've not actually taken to Jesus. And Jesus will not cover sin by his blood that he doesn't first uncover. This is the truth of 1 John 1, 9, right? Now, ultimately, you receive forgiveness in Christ for your sin, and that cannot be taken away from you. But you will experience a lack of intimacy with God and a dryness in your spiritual life if you harbor sin and make excuses for it or downplay it and God puts his finger on it and you eventually develop a callous to his conviction You've turned the volume down on his voice for so long that you don't even hear it anymore. And he's saying, look, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from that unrighteousness. He's talking to believers. But if you harbor sin and harbor iniquity in your hearts, he won't hear you. You'll pray to him and you'll feel like your prayers are hitting a ceiling because he is pointed to this situation and you've made an excuse for it, you've hid from it, you've tried to outrun it. And the story of Joseph's brothers today is here to tell us you cannot outrun your guilt. There is provision in Jesus for your sin and there's provision nowhere else. And so yield to him. If he's pointing out sin to you, yield to him. He is a safe place for sinners who come to him in humility. And you know how it is when you feel guilty before God and you feel like he won't accept me, he won't love me, he won't receive me back. And so he gives you the story of the prodigal son and says, the father is the only time God is described as hurrying in all of the Bible is when he needs a hurry to, to welcome back a sinner who repents, a son of his who repents and comes back home. He's in a hurry to welcome you back into his fellowship and to welcome you into intimacy with him. But believers, we cannot claim grace for sin that we have not confessed and sought to forsake. God will not have it. And you will continue to feel a distance between yourself and God until you confess your sin to him and, James says, to one another that you might receive healing from the Lord. And so I want to end with this, the rest of this passage from Psalm 32. And music team, you guys can come back up. In Psalm 32, David continues to describe how blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Listen to the rest of Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. He's praying to the Lord, your hand was heavy on me when I kept silent about my sin. My strength was dried up as by heat of summer. When I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confessing and forsaking. And so this is the message for us, church, from this. Full circle for all those three chapters. God will produce circumstances in your life to rip your callus off and to expose your guilt, to uncover what you have sought to cover and hide so that he can actually take it away. And when you seek to hide your sin or cover it up by your own means, by your own running, by your own excuses, things that nobody else but you knows about, then God's heavy hand will be on you because he loves you and because he wants to remove it from you. And he will not allow you to try to troubleshoot your sin while all the while rejoicing in the forgiveness of Christ Jesus. We, we can't make detours around the cross. And so this is the lesson for all the way back from the beginning of the garden. We have to take off the fig leaves. No more trying to hide our sin with our own righteousness or with time or with our excuses. We have to accept the sacrifice that God has given in our place. Judah was a picture of this sacrifice, of the substitute of Jesus in your place. But the Father is waiting with open arms for all of his children who would not seek to maintain righteousness or save face in front of other believers. Let's be done with that. Why are we wearing masks around each other? And the gospel is... Jesus is perfect. We are not. We came to him for healing. We come to him for mercy and grace and help in time of need. He's the only one who can forgive us of our sins, and his opinion is the only one that matters. And so I refuse to live in a far country lacking intimacy with God because I care about what other people are going to think if I actually confess to them that I'm a sinner, which will not be a shocker to anyone. And so we need to pray, and I'm going to do that right now. And I'm just inviting us, what I was saying at the outset, be thinking of areas in your life where God has put his finger on and do not run from the only source of your cleansing and your forgiveness. He's running to greet you and welcome you home. Father, Lord, all of our lives are open and laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. We will give an account to you one day for the deeds done in the body. I pray for those who are outside the safety, the refuge of Christ Jesus. I pray that they would feel the fear of dying and standing before God alone with their own righteousness and their guilt and the judge of all the, all the earth doing what is right. And I pray that they would see Christ lifted up as a refuge for their soul the one who took their place so that they could be forgiven and freed and brought into a relationship with God. And so if there are any today who are hearing the sound of my voice who have yet to repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus, I pray that today 
would be the day of salvation. That they would turn from their independence of you and of the controlling their own life and that they would receive from you the gift of forgiveness and life by the blood of your son. And Lord, I pray for your church brought near by the blood of Christ that we would make full advantage of the gift that you have given us in Jesus that we would not claim the gospel on paper, but in our lives create workarounds to the cross instead of confessing it, confessing our sin and forsaking it at the place where you covered it, at the cross. So let us bring our sins there to you this morning. Sins from 25 years ago and sins from yesterday. Jesus, our hope and our song is that you are righteous and that you alone can give us life. You are our righteousness. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we come to you and not to another. In Jesus' name, amen.